There will be lectures every week for the next several weeks. They will not by any means all be on Monday nights, breaking a long tradition of the Book Arts Press because of the class schedule of the School of Library Service, which makes it very difficult to prevent whimpering almost no matter what day of the week we run a lecture because of the heavy class schedule in the spring. So this one will be on Monday, and there will be lectures later in the semester on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I apologize in advance to those persons whose schedules make uh, these changes awkward. The next lecture in this series, if I have this right, is to be delivered on Thursday, May, uh, on Thursday, April 7th. Does that sound right to anybody who knows? David Hall? David Hall, who is professor of history at Boston University and the director of the Center for the Study of the Book in American Culture at the American Antiquarian Society, will be lecturing on uh, matters having to do with 17th century American reading next Thursday, uh, the, 5th, uh, the 7th of April. <coughs> On uh, Tuesday the 12th, if I have this right, thereafter, uh, Alistair Johnston, the co-proprietor of the Poltroon Press in Berkeley, one of the wittiest of the American private press operations in a field which I think many of us agree has very little wit indeed, will be lecturing on 19th century type specimens and other lectures to follow, including uh, one that I have not announced to the friends yet, but you may not, but you may want to put on your schedule on the 2nd of April, which, excuse me, the 2nd of May, which is a Monday, Charles Benson, who is a librarian in Trinity College, Dublin, and a friend of Paul Pollard, for those of you who uh, are regulars here will be lecturing on the Dublin book trade in the early 19th century. Is that news to you, Faith? <laughs> uh, he's hoping to stay with you, I might add. <laughs> Just one surprise after another <laughs> tonight. Uh, we have the great pleasure tonight, uh, no anticlimax he, of having Don Crummel, who is professor of music and library science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, repeating a lecture that he gave to a conference in Washington, D.C. in November, co-sponsored by, co by the Center for the Book and the Library of Congress and by the School of Library Service as part of the school's centennial celebrations. It is a great pleasure to welcome him back to Columbia. He last spoke here uh, in the early 80s in a lecture which many of you will vaguely know about because in more boring moments in room 506, you will have seen the poster, the one with the print in the middle of the music, advertising the lecture. The poster tonight is a bit more primitive, but the lecture isn't. It seemed particularly appropriate to ask him to give it in New York as a result of its enthusiastic reception in Washington in November. It's a great pleasure to have Don Crummel back at Columbia. Thank you. Uh, 
Uh, one difference, I hope, will be that um, I talk more slowly. My wife has asked for this particularly. I hope it will, the message will be a little clearer, but I'm not going to bet on it. After all, John Cole did ask me to talk on a topic called uh, Music and Histoire du Livre. What was the impact of printing? Part of this whole impact business. What was the impact of printing on music? And it is considerable, but I don't know quite what it is. Uh, this is an attempt to explore in a uh, general way what some of the impact of printing might be. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure that I really know what I'm talking about, talking fast or slow, but under the circumstances, the best place to begin is probably then with Victor Borge, uh, one of his famous skits. He teases his audiences by asking, uh, what would, you, would you like a bit of music now? The applause and the back talk tell him yes whereupon he reaches into the piano bench, grabs a handful of music, and passes it out. Now, what exactly is music? Does it really exist on, on paper or as sound? As sound, of course, and it's tangential to this discussion whether the primary event now is the creative act of performers generating vibrations, or the physical waves passing through space, um, or the, the psychological perception of those sound waves. It's definitely not the paper that Borga offers his audience, since if it were, nobody would laugh. And we as well as Borga know that this would really be very unfortunate. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think it would, one of my assistants reading this text pointed out to me that Borga could never use this uh, spiel in Germany because there they make a distinction between noten uh, and musik. Uh, the noten are what you see on paper. Uh, the musik or the tonkunst are um, what you hear in performance, what you hear. Uh, the joke simply wouldn't work there. Uh, I told my assistant to go to hell. But at any rate, uh, the, the music in any case would obviously cease to exist without the paper. The distinction between sound and paper can thus be either profoundly important or annoyingly obvious. Uh, Roman Ingarden, a Polish uh, philosopher, assembles a very careful argument to establish that the score is not the same as the music, but rather a set of signs, quote, symbolizing certain determined objects or processes. At the same time, he has to concede that the musical work has its source of existence and its properties in the composer's creative acts. Musicologists and critics who analyze music also make a point of etiquette in conceding that while they work from the paper, the final judgment is sound. At the same time, the real musicians, the performers to whom they defer, uh, depend utterly on what appears in front of their eyes. Performers are too busy to appreciate the implied compliment. They disparage the paper as quickly as musicologists do. Squiggles and fly specks, grossly overpriced in any music shop, but rarely in stock anyway. So crunch the library copy face down on the copying machine, forget the copyright law and call it fair use, and damn the publishers if they use a page size larger than, than eight and a half by 11. Clumsy sheets in mousetrap library bindings, sometimes the four parts of a string quartet bound in one volume even. Forever falling off the stands when left unbound, the pager's awkward and noisy to turn, and usually when both hands are busy. So cut the page in two, make a kind of a Dutch door out of it, or fold the, uh, the, the way musicians handle music is appalling. Uh, uh, add fast moving text, add some slur marks and breathing marks, uh, uh, corrections, circlings and personal reminders, heavily inscribed in brightly colored crayon. Fussy and intricate passage work, 
Uh, that's what you'll find in music that exposes what Beethoven wants, but only Beethoven and God could ever achieve. Uh, therefore, further inspiring the performer's vengeance on the hapless paper, which to begin with is far less than permanent durable. Also, however, it's indispensable paper, the very thought of which is sacred, so sacred, in fact, that how often do otherwise absent-minded performers forget their music and have to trundle across town to delay a performance or even a rehearsal? It is sacred to them. The music is what's on paper. You ask a musician what music is, you'll say paper. He will imply that, that it is what you see on paper. The paper is essential both operationally and symbolically. It's the, thus both its tool and object. It's the record of truth the ultimate arbiter of arguments over textual particulars. What does the score say? Uh, it's also the manifestation of things sacred. In Milton's classic terms, uh, quote, preserving as in a file, you've heard this, the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect which bred them. The precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. Due respects are befitting that paper as the essential communications medium of musicians, as our continuing reminder of sounds otherwise lost forever, and thus as a special privilege and responsibility of great libraries. The historic relationship between music and paper obviously deserves to be studied. At the same time, one remembers that, that the fashionable agenda of historical bibliography are nothing if not capricious. Their imaginative perspectives one moment seem commonplace and self-obvious the next moment dubious, outrageous, even spacey. Stability, ideally, ought to depend on a solid base of historical evidence. In other words, on our understanding of the conditions of use of music on paper, a kind of, if you will, a mentalité of performance practice, tempered by whatever classic perspectives uh, analytical bibliography can offer. At the same time, obviously, the whole performance, uh, the whole presentation of uh, discussion of this topic is highly lambent. It will bounce off the surface, and that's about all it can do. The very idea of music on paper, uh, in fact, must be, may be an oxymoron, but like so many oxymorons, the anomaly suggests the significance. This significance, I would like to argue, this is what I think I have contributed through this paper, touches on three interrelated matters. First, perception by the eye as opposed to the ear. Second, the impact on human memory, individual and social. And third, the existence in place and in time. Let's consider each of these briefly. The ear listens, the eye looks. In comparison of the written with the spoken word, uh, Walter Ong defends the primacy of the spoken word. Sound is more real or existential than other sense objects, despite the fact that it is also more evanescent. It is here and now activity that conveys meaning more powerfully and accurately than sight. Being a special sensory key to interiority, it has an often forgotten power to unite groups of living beings as nothing else does. There is both a broad truth and an even greater oversimplification in the romantic notion that music, quote, is the language of emotions. Uh, that very idea, of course, is an emotional statement, and appropriately, it sounds much better than it ever reads on paper. Uh, perhaps in recognition of this general condition, music has never even aspired to being a graphic art. One does see decorative covers, awesome in order to honor the Renaissance patron, for instance, or conspicuous, garish, or even clever in order to catch the idea of a 19th century purchaser. But within the musical text itself, the notes are simply drawn, 
never distractingly ornamented, often thoughtfully laid out, above all strictly functional. Music is sound, being an interiorized experience, becomes part of the hearer. It leaves behind a variety of impressions, subtle, usually impossible to describe. That effect, whether mystically ineffable or ineffably mystic, clearly delights our romantic sensibilities. This same interiorization has no doubt further frustrated assorted rationalists, Marxists, Skinnerians, Muzak engineers. They're anxious to make the most out of the effects of music, uh, but they're also quite at a loss to explain what's really going on, and quite, even, uh, quite equally, they're unable to admit that they don't know what's going on. Uh, the effect of music is something that is uh, essentially ununderstandable. The memory of musical experience is respect, probably not unlike the aesthetic condition of oral cultures in general, small, cohesive, parochial, intense. An ancient, as ancient Greek civilization moved from an oral culture to a written one, Socrates <laughs> expressed his classic misgiving. Writing will, quote, induce forgetfulness, and the human memory will lose its discipline. Western civilization, preoccupied with the extensions of human resources, has awarded the contract for extending human memory mostly to the written record. Functionally, its counterparts uh, are our kitchen implements, which eliminate the need for cooking drudgery, or our pocket calculators, which obviate the need for memorizing multiplication tables. In the words of one English wag, the nice thing about an encyclopedia is that it knows and therefore I don't need to. This is the effect of writing on memory. In truth, the written record uh, does something quite different as well. To musical performers, it says, uh, the written record knows, and I can if and when I need to. Uh, to society at large, it says even more. Cumulatively, thanks to performers, it creates the sound that resonates in the human ear and rumbles on down into the solar plexus. The audience, not necessarily able to read music at all, usually knows, uh, neither knows nor cares what specific sounds are being heard. But the sound itself is fixed according to the written record. It is this memory of sound with its implications for the social institutions of music that I want to touch on tonight. I do have reservations of uh, now uh, digression when I say that the audience neither knows nor cares what sounds are being heard. I think there are some respects in which that there are uh, exceptions to that rule. For instance, you, we know, uh, we, we may not be able to read music, but we know when a tenor hits a high C, or we've been told that it's a high C. And uh, tenors and sopranos, when they hit high Cs, that is, that, that, that's an event in its own right. Uh, when Madame Butterfly, at the end of the uh, entrance, sings a high D flat, that's something even a little bit better. Uh, on the other hand, when the Queen of the Night has to go up to a high F, that is so inevitable as to be beyond our comprehension. Uh, there are ways in which I'm, this whole passage I'm going to eventually have to back down on, but even so, the important fact is that the audience, uh, not necessarily able to read music at all, usually neither knows nor cares what specific notes are heard, usually. Milton's life beyond life for the precious uh, lifeblood of his master spirit. Now, what is this exactly? The first life, whether for literary or musical texts, uh, is it not really an idealization in Mozart's mind? 
Whatever it is, all we can really read into the paper is a notion of an essence, of what Mozart committed to a manuscript copy, what an engraver incised into plates and ran off. Arteria then issued, subsequent uh, publishers pirated, regurgitated photographically or otherwise garbled, grangerized, glossed over for children, gentrified for casual listing, gussied up for fast finger technicians, or finally made genuine again and thus glorified by modern scholarly editors. There's a whole sequence here. Uh, however much or little we have, it is Gnug, it's enough. That's all we have. The afterlife thus begins as publishers, editors, engravers, printers, distributors, binders, retailers, and with luck eventually performers. Notice the paper and listeners hear the work recreated off that paper. Music on paper lasts. It can aspire to immortality, enduring for centuries, conquering the ravages of time. Such has been an article of faith at least for two centuries, and even now deteriorating paper notwithstanding. The wide particulars of time and space need to be remembered. In simplistic terms, one thinks of sound as existing in time, paper and space. Of course, the matter is much more complicated, re requiring first a, a separation of personal time measured in microsections of perception from historical time measured in years, centuries, and eternities, and personal space measured in what our eye and ear can discriminate from geopolitical space of our world. The sound certainly exists in personal space. In basic terms, for instance, as the difference between monaural and stereo. While the paper obviously exists in personal time, the time required to read a, a musical text. Both of these are secondary, but need to be recalled later. The larger dimensions are really what Milton had in mind when he talked about an afterlife. The afterlife, uh, is not what you hear when a tenor holds that high C forever or when the uh, groove is worn out on your damaged record and you hear that over again. That's not Milton's afterlife. He is thinking of centuries, not of personal time, but of larger scale dimensions. Continuity, however, depends on more than paper. This is, there's a vast dis distinction between availability and experience. Library preservation and access programs, however laudable, can scarcely perpetuate traditions. Nor can citation, promotion, and all the access programs do much more. The sound is what assures uh, preservation. There is a long thesaurus of terms used to distinguish this sound, always imperfect, often imaginative in its own right. On occasion, it's synesthetic. A performance brings out the poetry, for instance, or a conception of a work is architectural. Uh, often it's dramatic, or alas, comic. At other times, with recourse to magic or religion or other concepts that betray the fact that we really don't know what we're talking about. Often subtlest of all to describe are those effects that, through rhythmic nuance, pay freely with, uh, play freely with perceptual time itself. Uh, we lump them together under headings like rubato. They may warp the basic beat in broad theatrical gesture, gestures in romantic piano music, or more subtly, so, so as to bring out the logic of a musical line. They often call attention to the physical resources of the performer needed to sustain the line, for instance, the breath control of a spinto soprano. The nuances of performance practice. Carl Dauhaus uses the Greek term topoi, a stereotyped opinions. His translator calls them cliches. They distinguish the memorable from the pedestrian. They thereby evoke the fiercest of arguments and the fiercest of commitments. Uh, 
Implicit in the score, they're also a kind of a pedaya that holds together the social context of the music itself. Father Ong speaks of the process of reciprocation, of evoking responses, uh, which sound establishes uh, in its community. It can do this only as it comes to life, telling conception in its own right. Another term is often used to describe the overall process. We sp speak of the collective musical memory of Western civilization as being imprinted. Ironic, perhaps, but oddly appropriate. The musics of many oral cultures often claim nuances of great intricacy and uh, effectiveness now. Oral cultures remain as quintessentially limited in their existence, rarely imperialistic uh, politically, unaware of a future and a past, existing only in the present. Rarely the peaceable ki kingdom such as we would like to envy. They're also encumbered by the commitments, either uh, they're also unencumbered by the commitments either to the clock of time or the proprietary ownership of space that we all know too well. One of Western society's special uh, benefits is the privilege of access to the musical repertories of the past, at least as they're preserved on paper, and to those of communities and societies other than our own. Today, thanks to sound recordings, we're blessed with a few, with a full ethnomusicological smorgasbord. We proudly rejoice in our Western traditions of improvisations, usually quite oblivious to the, their origins, directly or indirectly on paper. Our cadenzas are written out. Church organists follow the theory books for their modulations. Continuos are realized and ornaments are executed according to the three great 18th century treatises. Even the jazz instrumentalist has a phylacteric scrap of paper in front of his eyes. In essence, only a sound can establish an extended communal space and thereby conquer historical time. The landmark events of music printing and publishing are useful to recall briefly, all the more so since they are somewhat different from the landmarks of printing and publishing in general. Although musical notation can be found in antiquity, the history we know begins in the Middle Ages. During the Renaissance, music proliferated on parchment and then on paper, so that the incunabula printers were attracted to the vexing problems of recreating music through movable type. The early efforts may never have been all that successful for both technical and economic reasons, but I think it probably didn't matter that much. In a publishing context sustained largely by patronage, typeset music was perhaps more for show than for use. Musicians, we may suspect, perhaps prefer the manuscript copy, usually more serviceably presented and bearing the endorsement of private circulation. In a symbolic sense, musical print culture then dates not from the uh, 1457, uh, it does date from the 1457 Psalter of Fust and Schaeffer. But in a functional sense, uh, print culture with music doesn't begin until the rise of modern music publishing in the 18th century. The technological event, recourse to a different printing process, engraving rather than letterpress, is probably less important than the socioeconomic event, namely the new awareness of communities with professional musicians in the 18th century. Music in any event comes to be ordered. That is, its history comes to be recognized, distinctions of quality come to be canonized, and taste comes to find its standards. The music publishing enterprise that arose was a landmark event in the history of music itself. As recently as a generation ago, such a notion would have been curious, but today it resonates well as we examine the 18th century in general. For instance, the change coincides with the rise of ongoing, other ongoing musical institutions, 
like the Louis Institute orchestras and concert programs, the proliferating public opera houses and conservatories, the industrialization of instrument manufacturing, and the rise of music retailing. The burgeoning output of published music can further serve both as a Marxist example of capitalists contributing to the debasement of quality and as a commonplace notion. Not the least of the proponents of the new dem democratic ideal, of course, was Beethoven, as he cried forth, Zeitung schlungen Millionen, be embraced all ye millions. Through some strange, broad historical sense, inscrutable but plausible, he recognized and fostered the shift of music as a part of society, passing out of the courtly patronage of the Ancien Regime into a new order determined by a general public and to him accessible through music publishers. Not far behind was the era of high romanticism of Ger and German idealism, of the musical pantheon devoted to those master spirits whose sheer genius qualified them for personal immortality. The pantheon itself is generally identifiable and clearly admired, but it has rarely been admired as an historical event, uh, examined as a historical event in its own right. Reverence like silence has been enough for us. It's a form of German idealism, of a difference between uh, the uh, noumena and the phenomena. The noumena is Mozart uh, somewhere out in the nowhere. Uh, the uh, phenomena is the performance and the paper. Uh, that's uh, an interesting idea. It has a, uh, a precision about it that's reminiscent, uh, reminiscent of a good downbeat by Wilhelm Furtwängler. Where is it? It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, perhaps the most lucid rationalization is that of the later-day theorist Heinrich Schenker, whose pantheon has rigorous and credible admission standards, defended on both analytical and musical grounds. The gods in Schenker's pantheon may be a narrowly defined group active between 1700 and 1880. Bach, Handel, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Mendelssohn, Schumann, and Brahms, maybe Chopin. Uh, Schenker was all the more vulnerable to charges of parochialism since his gods all came from his hometown, namely Vienna. Uh, on the other hand, his defense ranged across the intellectual spectrum from analytical bibliography through textual criticism. No less impressive is the fact that he saw no real problem in reconciling bibliography and textual criticism. Uh, furthermore, his sound judgment has been all too well confirmed. The performers who command top respect today mostly specialize in his repertory. Audiences established their favorites in response to those same performers, and entrepreneurs have built legends of these particular composers along with their own empires. Musical instruction, both theoretical and practical, is based on the repertory of the immortals. As it identifies a functional hegemony for musical society at large, uh, Schenker's pantheon identifies the, villain, the villains beloved of contrary spirits, mostly French. Contemporary composers from Berlioz and Debussy forward have lamented their narrow-mindedness of public taste. Society has moved forward and outward, but very cautiously, taste being by nature diverse, divisive, and changeable. No doubt out of fears, both fear and awe, the politics of music, rich and capricious, has been very sensitive to examine. Only slowly, in coincidence to the rise of ethnomusicology, have scholars begun to recognize the geographical dimensions to their study. Wagner and Verdi were literally on the map from the outset, along with a few other composers of Italian opera and nationalistic music in the German style, particularly when their conspicuous roots were in the pantheon, in other words. 
Only very slowly have our audiences moved into the repertories of our own century, often with fierce delight, but along narrow lines in recent years to earlier repertories. The Pantheon claims not total, but merely effective control. For all its many significant antecedents and successors, today's musical hegemony, though, remains essentially a 19th century institution. Uh, under such conditions, a work of music comes to acquire a life of its own, apart from any specific manifestations on paper or as sound. Performers seek out the composer's workshop, as they call it. Music theory as a discipline comes to be rationalized in terms of this repertory. Musical criticism becomes essentially, quote, composerly, that lovely word, uh, composerly, that loverly word that uh, theorists use. Library catalogers even collect manifestations through a distinctly German idealistic notion known as the uniform title, while editors collate and uh, manifest, uh, collect the manifestations of works to achieve a definitive statement that they can level, that they can label another German idealistic notion as the Urtext, the original text, the ideal text. No doubt in part because of this preoccupation with the romantic side of the creative process, we have too rarely sought to ask what precise role the documents performed in the musical society then used them. In discussing the new study called Reception History, for instance, Carl Dauhaus presents a case for disposing of, quote, the notion of a pre-existent, objective, a priori body of musical content. Doing so, of course, threatens ultimately to undermine the rationale behind both the uniform titles of music catalogers and perhaps even the Ortext editions themselves. Our libraries are in danger, in other words. But alternative underpinnings are impossible to take seriously. For better or worse, our concern is with the ideal which we worship and cherish. We see the Mozart brothers, the new movie. Uh, uh, we see uh, and we laugh at it, but ultimately we're thrilled most of all uh, when we hear the sound of the music. Uh, whatever uh, that producer does to them in Don O'Hanahan's, probably his most delightful nightmare, uh, whatever that producer does to them in that movie, um, uh, what ultimately makes the movie work is Mozart's music. It's the or text, it's the uh, noumena behind the phenomena, if you will. Our sympathy is genuine uh, as we see what can happen to the music. Uh, we shudder at the thought of Jorge of Burgos withholding and then consuming and being consumed along with his monastic li library. Yet we delight as at the piano bench library is consumed uh, by the audience of our modern day Victor of Burgos. In essence, the difference, perhaps the basic point to this text, is that we suspect that Aristotle's second book of, of poetics is really what musicians often refer to as a fake book. The primary requirement of great performance is uh, great performers is that they remind us, though, of their indispensability. The point has been slow to be appreciated. Has been slow to be appreciated. Performers not wishing to blow their cover. Perhaps uh, it's well to realize that performers honor the paper and thus sustain the collective musical memory of Western civilization. But they do so in special ways that define tastes as they make their compelling case. Indispensability calls for a process not of repetition but of recreation. And the better the music, the richer the prospects of convincing representation. Uh, this may be what is behind Schenker after all, not the uh, rationalization of the theory, but the flexibility of the recreation and the prospects for uh, redefinition, uh, perhaps though not as in the Mozart brothers. Uh, 
A few of the special historical relationships between the composer's text and the performer are worth recalling briefly. Perhaps the earliest of these special relationships involves the Renaissance ornament pra ornamentation practice known as the secret chromatic art of raising or not raising a pitch so as to please God with a more harmonious interval, or to please man with a more felicitous melody, or to awaken both to a brash dissonance. The practice is known least of all through printed music. Its very essence is that of a secret performer's art. Its implications are at once a joy for the imaginative musicologist and a reminder of the constrained inquiry of any good bibliographer. The performer's need to be asserted to a wide public audience becomes particularly obvious in the early 19th century as music publishers came to serve as uh, patrons to the composer. Perhaps because of this event, the great virtuosi of the period are often seen as, quote, transcendental. Their objective was to use surpassing technical resources to achieve results beyond ordinary achievement, thereby aspiring to the sublime, if not even to the magical. Liszt's piano pyrotechnics, Paganini's diabolical mastery of the violin, the astounding, endearing skills of operatic singers of the day. These are better in, understood in terms of credulous audiences than of pedagogic process, uh, processes. Admittedly, musical instruction itself often calls for transcendental skills. It takes a remarkable ability to persuade small children to love their charity, charity etudes. It's more the listeners, uh, however, who buy the legendary. Even more pertinent here are two images. The first, the performers who announce themselves as mere dwarves on the shoulders of giant master composers, a worthy example of what uh, uh, Merton has labeled as the parvus complex. I am the humble servant of creative genius. Nonsense, but uh, it makes a nice story just the same. The second is of the virtuoso as composer, magnanimous in sharing texts with the general public through publication, but knowing full well that the experience or even, of even attempting a performance would lead mostly to an even greater rec recognition of the performer's div divine gifts. Try Paganini uh, etudes on your violin. Uh, it makes you appreciate Niccolo all the more. Uh, in such work, one recognizes Matthew Arnold's vision of, quote, a harmonious expansion of all the powers which make for the beauty and worth of human nature. Uh, in other words, we are fundamentally flawed as human beings. Uh, Matthew Arnold, Liszt, Paganini are not. As music becomes memorialized on paper, what happens then to that human faculty known as the art of memory? In some settings, performers obviously will need to deny themselves recourse to a score. On the operatic stage, for instance, you don't carry a score. Most everywhere else, the performers are assumed to have it in front of them. Even in the opera house, in the, uh, even in the opera house of course, the prompter has one. Well-celebrated instances involve the musicians, typically conductors, who perform without music in front of them. Uh, the case, the legendary case, of course, is Arturo Toscanini. Whether because of bad eyesight or good press agents, his memorization of scores helped foster an awesome respect for identifying himself with the music. The interiorization is crucial insofar as the, performers, uh, the performance does not so much reproduce the work as recreate it anew. Milton's life beyond life is never the same twice. Learning by note and learning by rote are profoundly different experiences. Learning by note is the more secure process by virtue of the backup reference on the printed page, but it's also the more inhibiting insofar as the page often actually encumbers the performer in grasping the potential of what the music can sound like. 
ask seasoned orchestral musicians, for instance, to tell you about young conductors who learn from their recordings. Uh, indeed, the mutual antipathies of music historians and music educators would seem to be the only good reason for now neglecting the study of the history of musical literacy, both its dimensions and its implications. How many people could actually read music in the 16th century? Not very many, but how did they read music then? Uh, who actually can read a, uh, in performance a full score of an opera as you're conducting it? James Levine does not read those notes, but what uh, effect does it have on him as he conducts? It's, uh, it's a good question to ask. The arteries through which the composer's lifeblood flows, of course, do show some signs of sclerosis, and more than might be wished. Printed editions are filled with mistakes and misunderstandings, interpretations and performance markings of later hands. The score itself is thought to be most useful when it is most implicit and destroyed of, and devoid of ego. One of the little studied evolutions of musical scores over the past two centuries has seen the quietest and the barest of outlines, uh, enhanced with restrictive nuances and busy particulars, added either by the composer or the performer. Textual and analytical bibliography thus become all the more essential in preparing the so-called urtext editions. Although the bibliographical method for music is less well rationalized than it ought to be, a whole field called Denkmäler Wesen, uh, how to create a monument, uh, has nevertheless given rise to the preparation of correct editions of, music, of master musicians. The text itself becomes a major objective, uh, but in the service particularly of the performer. At the same time, our fascination with reception history suggests even an even greater need for analytical bibliography. The search for first editions has now become a search for evidence of changing taste, as reflected through the relationships between all bibliographical objects, later editions, new issues, states, all the, uh, the like, on into uh, some rather strange areas indeed. Uh, this would not be possible if we had not come to esteem both Christopher Hogwood and Peter Schickley, the one for knowing the right cliches in pursuit of idealistic authenticity, the other for knowing the right uh, cliches in pursuit of idealistic travesty. Uh, a recent successor to the transcendental technician, meanwhile, is the orchestration pirate. From around 1950, I remember college roommates spending hours at the old 78 RPM phonograph with the latest Stan Kenton record, dropping the needle over and over again on a passage and then listening astutely for a few sounds in hopes of capturing on paper Pete Rugolo's special deployment of sound for adaptation at the next dance band gig. Copyright infringement, perhaps, but beyond the pale in terms of any likely compensatory damages, and in fact, in spirit, the kind of fair use that excuses the flower for suing the bee. In the process of transcription, the sound itself becomes instilled as the essence of the image. Paper was still necessary. The image was not complete until it was rationalized. Indeed, in a sense, it's rem reminiscent of modern scientific values until it was replicable. The advent of the LPs, of course, may have extended this period of needle-dropping technology, but the rise of scholarly uh, cantometrics in ethnomusicology suggests a continuing recourse to paper. Transcendentalism even enters the, the picture. For instance, here's a quotation from Andre Previn. Quote, any Hollywood composer can stand in front of a thousand fiddles and a thousand brass and make a dramatic gesture, and every studio musician can nod his head and say, oh yes, that's done like this. But Duke Ellington merely lifts his little finger, three horns make a sound, and I don't know what it is. 
that's transcendental artistry in the, in the sound recording period. You can't put it on paper. Uh, among the more stultifying curiosities, in contrast, uh, is the phenomenon known as Augenmusik, or eye music. It dates mainly from the 17th and 18th centuries in the spirit of the emblem books of the period. It attempts to communicate at several levels at once. The reader receives two messages scientifically, for instance, black notes to signify death, placed on a staff to form a cross and signify redemption, through an encrypted message and by a process of mental gymnastics, the reader is stimulated to an enhanced awareness. At the same time, the, me the message is typically covert. The listener hears none of what's seen on the page. In this important respect, it's commonly unlike the other synesthetic form known as word painting, in which the listener is actually expected to hear the symbolic device. For instance, a falling melodic line for the descent into hell, or 12 chords in honor of the apostles, or scorings for the flute in, in imitation of birds. In all such instances, the creative stimulation uh, results from a special relationship with the page in front of them. And it perhaps is coming back as Villalobos traces the New York skyline to create his own melodic line. Uh, one step further, of course, we get in uh, works uh, like those of Earl Brown, uh, in which the uh, music itself is literally a painting. One final manifestation of transcendentalism involves that mu uh, business-like musical enterprise known as the Broadway theater. The creative process itself is typically drawn in very romantic terms, for instance, in the legends of composers actually making love with the muse, entangled and intertwined so passionately as to require other hands to notate and orchestrate the scores. The definitive legend is that of Irving Berlin, whose inspiration was so pure as to preclude any need to know how to write or read music at all. It's been suggested that he pleaded illiteracy in order to avoid librarians after his scores. In point of fact, Berlin's tune belie a craftsmanship such as may obviate the need for paper. Perhaps he's merely a modern heir to those Renaissance composers whose polyphonic masterpieces were committed to paper apparently only in part books leaving us baffled at this prospect of a creative process, which is rather unlike that of a chess master able to pursue five games of chess at one time. The strength of today's German ideological music hegemony, then, uh, is an obvious target. It always has been, it always will be. Alan Bloom and Robert Patterson are perhaps correct in viewing the phenomenal growth of rock music as evidence of, re of revolt against those critical institutions that Western civilization has seen as most sacred, namely mind, money, and music. Fill the head with acid and anarchy, the ears with sto strobe light exhibitionism, the ears with decibels. The result may be a disesthetic hegemony in its own right, but the, the name of this particular rose is still rock music. The sound is only incidentally and occasionally committed to paper, and perhaps wisely, since beneath the heavy amplification, the sounds in truth are regressively old-fashioned. Uh, the fact is that you don't want to hear the music again, and that's part of its importance. Uh, what then, however, of the future? What's the responsibility of scholarship and of societies to its written musical documents? two contradictory signals emerge. The first pays due respect to the Pantheon as one of the monumental achievements of Western civilization. The sounds themselves in their craftsmanship and as a meaningful experience are of a richness, sensitivity,
durability over time in some of a beauty and a pleasure that inspires and requires a special commitment on the part of the individual and of society at large. In more practical terms, the quality of human life is at stake. Therefore, listen well, support your local symphony orchestra, and nurture your children in their music lessons. The contrasting conclusion holds that the Pantheon is a creation and a reflection of one place in time, different from our own, different in its needs, and thus relevant to circumstances other than ours. Both statements are true. However, one must ask then, why should they be seen uh, as mutually incompatible in the first place? One answer reminds us that sheep don't graze as safely when Elvis is rocking on the ghetto blaster. Nor would the dead quite be as efficaciously grateful if they realized that Bach had already uh, uh, preceded them with a cantata called Ich freue mich auf meinem Tod. I'm grateful that I'm dead. Uh, but uh, at this point, though, uh, the uh, agenda of music bibliography starts to overflow. Much of what's been proposed here, however, is still is nothing more than being worth taking is, is worth nothing more than being taken for granted. One scholar looking at tonight's topic in a more limited context saw his goal as, as uh, seeking, quote, to frame questions that might be put to the written record in order that it may give testimony about the oral tradition that lies behind it. The goal here is even more brash, to frame similar questions for the written record in no recognition of its documents at all. The romantic aura of master spirits, which has pervaded the music of the past two centuries, both transformed and in a sense created our conception of musical documents. Yet, uh, when you read through one of the most interesting books on the whole topic, uh, Lenny Meyer's Music, the Arts and Ideas, uh, does he even touch on music on paper? The closest I can find is a footnote on page 123, quote, the distinction between composer and performer also depends upon the existence of an adequate notational system. That's as close as he gets. Uh, it can and usually has been treated without recognition of paper at all. Um, still, for all of our bibliographical riches, we have little note, uh, notion of what precisely music on paper did to the art of music itself. A presentation like this is by nature lambent. Like so much of today's, uh, the points I raised are highly vulnerable. Sheridan complained that Dundas was in debt, quote, indebted to his memory for his jests and to his imagination for the facts. Scientists and scholars are expected to deal with uh, evidence and responsible conjectures based on that evidence. But what is the evidence? One scampers through the mountainous debris of musical artifacts preserved in our libraries and ends up with the same ineffability that inspired the latter romantic gods in the Pantheon. Hard evidence is very sketchy. Archives of music publishers, most of them intentionally destroyed. Extant editions issued and preserved in quantities so vast as ever to preclude any effective organization. At times, there are the copyright records here in Great Britain reveal an output of the press almost equivalent to the output of printed books for music. Uh, there will be, uh, in, at times in the uh, US Copyright Office around the 1910s, uh, there will be, say, 40,000 books registered, 30,000 musical editions. The quantity is stupendous, appalling. Uh, observations of persons who were part of the musical life of the day, often they were happy to record their thoughts, blissfully unaware, perhaps necessarily, of the issues that are now being asked. 
Meanwhile, as one compares the thick black ink of an early musical engraving with the grayness of the lithographic reprint, one can see the precious lifeblood becoming anemic and transfusion through microfilm or often optical discs naturally leaves the scrupulous bibliography frightened. Uh, might there be blood poisoning entering into the precious lifeblood along the way? And more than that, how can you tell? Uh, scrupulous performers still feel a deep moral duty to recreate the notes that Beethoven heard in his own creative mind. By the same token, responsible scholars must ultimately work not from copies of copies of copies off a video disc and a microfilm, uh, even less from algorithms of citations and statistics, but from the best evidence, which is the manuscript and the early editions. The speculations raised here, alas, are um, uh, only rarely supported by physical evidence on paper. And these must ultimately then be the best evidence a scrupulous bibliographer can have. As it searches for ineffable in music as it searches for the ineffable, music bibliography perhaps comes to catch the creative spirit of Beethoven and uh, Mozart. It's neither ironic nor lamentable to recall a classic conception of J.B.S. Haldane. Like science and religion, which Haldane is talking about, music bibliography is, quote, a way of life and an attitude toward, in this case, the musical universe, concerned with everything but the nature of reality, which is sound. Statement of facts may be generally right in detail, but they can only reveal the form and not the real nature of existence. The wise man regulates his conduct accordingly, but he regards his theories not as statement of ultimate fact, but as mere art forms. Like the music of Beethoven, Mozart, and others from inside and outside the Pantheon, indeed, like all of learning, uh, the study of musical documents can ultimately be taken seriously only as its own lifeblood contributes to the recreative process, whether of performance or of scholarship. Thank you.